0: cast episode 475 the travel cast is an audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself i'm your host norm sherman double header special for you this week folks an author i think you're gonna love double headers are two flash pieces by the same author that kind of showcase what they're all about this guy i love this guy donald barthelme Donald's an American short story writer known for his modernist collages, which are marked by technical experimentation and kind of a melancholy gaiety, and just, I don't know, wicked sense of humor. He was born in 1931 and died in 1989. A one-time journalist, Barthelme was managing editor of Location, an art and literature review, and director of the Contemporary Art Museum in Houston. In 1964, he published his first collection of short stories, Come Back, Dr. Caligari. Other collections of stories include City Life, Sadness, Sixty Stories, and Overnight to Many Distant Cities. His first children's book, The Slightly Irregular Fire Engine, or The Hithering Thithering Gin, won the National Book Award in 1972. Our first story here, Some of Us Have Been Threatening Our Friend Colby, was first published in 1976 in the anthology Amateurs. And directly following that, we'll present the story Game, which was first published in July 1965 of The New Yorker. So, without further ado, we bring you Some of Us Had Been Threatening Our Friend Colby and Game by Donald Barthelme. Some of us had been threatening our friend Colby for a long time because of the way he'd been behaving, and now he'd gone too far. So he decided to hang him. Colby argued that just because he'd gone too far, he did not deny that he'd gone too far, did not mean that he should be subjected to hanging. Going too far, he said, was something everybody did sometimes. We didn't pay much attention to this argument. We asked him what sort of music he'd like played at the hanging. He said he'd think about it, but it would take him a while to decide. I pointed out that we'd have to know soon, because Howard, who's a conductor, would have to hire and rehearse the musicians, and he couldn't begin till he knew what the music was going to be. Colby said he'd always been fond of Ives' fourth symphony. Howard said that this was a delaying tactic, and that everybody knew that Ives was almost impossible to perform, and would involve weeks of rehearsal, and that the size of the orchestra and chorus would put us way over budget. Be reasonable, he said to Colby. Colby said he'd try to think of something a little less exacting. Hugh was worried about the wording of the invitations. What if one of them fell into the hands of the authorities? Hanging Colby was doubtless against the law, and if the authorities learned in advance what the plan was, they would very likely come in and try to mess everything up. I said that although hanging Colby was almost certainly against the law, we had a perfect moral right to do so, because he was our friend. He belonged to us in various important senses, and he had, after all gone too far. We agreed that the invitations would be worded in such a way that the person invited could not know for sure what he was being invited to. We decided to refer to the event as an event involving Mr. Colby Williams. A handsome script was selected from a catalog, and we picked a cream-colored paper. Magnus said he'd see to having the invitations printed, and wondered whether we should serve drinks. Colby said he thought drinks would be nice, but was worried about the expense, We told him kindly that the expense didn't matter, that we were, after all, his dear friends, and if a group of dear friends couldn't get together and do the thing with a little bit of a clot, why, what was the world coming to? Colby asked if we would be able to have drinks, too, before the event. We said certainly. The next item of business was the gibbet. None of us knew too much about gibbet design, but Thomas, who's an architect, said he'd look it up from the old books he has and draw the plans. The important thing, as far as he recollected, was that the trapdoor functioned perfectly. He said that just roughly, counting labor and materials, it shouldn't run us more than $400. Good God, Howard said. He said, what was Thomas figuring on, rosewood? No, just a good grade of pine, Thomas said. Victor asked if unpainted pine would look kind of raw, and Thomas replied that he thought it could be stained a dark walnut without too much trouble. I said that although I thought the whole thing ought to be done really well and all, I also thought $400 for a gibbet, on top of the expense for the drinks, invitations, musicians, and everything, was a bit... steep. And why didn't we just use a tree, a nice-looking oak or something? I pointed out that since it was going to be a June hanging, the trees would be in glorious leaf by then, and that not only would a tree add a kind of natural feeling, but it was also strictly traditional, especially in the West. Thomas, who'd been sketching gibbets on the backs of envelopes, reminded us that an outdoor hanging always had to contend with the threat of rain. Victor said he liked the idea of doing it outdoors, possibly on the bank of a river, but noted that we'd have to hold it some distance from the city, which presented the problem of getting the guests, musicians, etc., to the site and then back to town. At this point, everybody looked at Harry, who runs a car and truck rental business, Harry said that he thought he could round up enough limousines to take care of that end, but that the drivers would have to be paid. The drivers, he pointed out, wouldn't be friends of Colby's and couldn't be expected to donate their services any more than the bartender or the musicians. He said that he had about ten limousines, which he used mostly for funerals, and that he could probably obtain another dozen by calling around. He also said that if we did do it outside in the open air, we'd better figure on a tent or awning of some kind to cover at least the principals and the orchestra, because if the hanging was going to be rained on, he thought it would look kind of dismal. As between gibbet and tree, he said, he had no particular preferences, and he really thought that the choice ought to be left up to Colby, since it was his hanging. Colby said that everybody went too far sometimes, and weren't we being just a little draconian? Howard said, rather sharply, that all that had been discussed already, and which did he want, gibbet or tree? Colby asked if he could have a firing squad. No, Howard said, he could not. Howard said a firing squad would just be an ego trip for Colby, the blindfold, the last cigarette bit, and that Colby was in enough hot water already without trying to upstage everybody with unnecessary theatrics. Colby said he was sorry, and he hadn't meant it that way. He'd take the tree. Thomas crumpled up the gibbet sketches he'd been making in disgust. Then the question of the hangman came up. Peter said, did we really need a hangman? Because if we had a tree, the noose could be adjusted to the appropriate level with Colby and he could just jump off of something, a chair or stool or something. Besides, Pete said, he very much doubted if there were any freelance hangmen wandering around the country, now that capital punishment had been done away with absolutely, temporarily, and that we'd probably have to fly one in from England or Spain or some South American country, and even if we did that, how could we know in advance that the man was a professional, you know, a real hangman, not just some money-hungry amateur who could bungle the job up and shame us all in front of everybody, in front of Colby. We all agreed then that Colby should just jump off of something, and that a chair was not what he should jump off of, because that would look, what we felt, extremely tacky. (laughs) Some old kitchen chair sitting out there under a beautiful tree. Thomas, who was quite modern in outlook and not afraid of innovation, proposed that Colby be standing on like a a large round rubber ball ten feet or so in diameter. This, he said, would afford a sufficient drop and would also roll out of the way if Colby suddenly changed his mind after jumping. He reminded us that by not using a regular hangman, we were placing an awful lot of responsibility for the success of the affair on Colby himself, and that although he was sure Colby would perform credibly and not disgrace his friends at the last minute, still, men have been known to get a little irresolute at times like that, and the ten-foot round rubber ball, which could be fabricated rather cheaply, would ensure a bang-up production right down to the wire. At the mention of wire, Hank, who'd been silent all the time, suddenly spoke up and said he wondered if it wouldn't be better to use wire instead of rope. More efficient, and in the end, kinder to Colby, he suggested. Colby began looking a little green, and I didn't blame him, because there is something extremely distasteful in thinking about being hanged with wire instead of rope. It gives you sort of a revulsion when you think about it. I thought it was really quite unpleasant of Hank to be sitting there talking about wire just when we'd solved the problem of what Colby was going to jump off of so neatly with Thomas's idea about the rubber ball. So I hastily said that wire was out of the question because it would injure the tree, cut into the branch it was tied to when Colby's full weight hit it, something like that. And in these days of increased respect for the environment, we didn't want that, did we? Colby gave me a grateful look, and the meeting broke up. Everything went off very smoothly the day of the event. The music Colby finally picked was standard stuff, Elgar, and was played very well by Howard and his boys. It didn't rain, the event was well attended, and we didn't run out of scotch or anything. The ten-foot rubber ball had been painted a deep green, and it blended in well with the bucolic setting. The two things I remember best about the whole episode are the grateful look Colby gave me when I said what I said about The Wire and the fact that nobody has ever gone too far again. Donald Barthelme. Shotwell keeps the jacks and the rubber ball in his attaché case and will not allow me to play with them. He plays with them, alone, sitting on the floor near the console, hour after hour, chanting onesies, twosies, threesies, foursies, in a precise, well-modulated voice, not so loud as to be annoying, not so soft as to allow me to forget. I point out to Shotwell that two can derive more enjoyment from playing jacks than one, but he is not interested. I have asked repeatedly to be allowed to play by myself, but he simply shakes his head. Why, I ask. They're mine, he says. And when he has finished, when he has sated himself, back they go into the attaché case. It is unfair, but there's nothing I can do about it. I'm aching to get my hands on them. Shotwell and I watch the console. Shotwell and I live under the ground and watch the console. If certain events take place upon the console, we are to insert our keys in the appropriate locks and turn our keys. Shotwell has a key, and I have a key. If we turn our keys simultaneously, the bird flies. Certain switches are activated, and the bird flies. But the bird never flies. In 133 days, the bird has not flown. Meanwhile, Shotwell and I watch each other. We each wear a forty-five, and if Shotwell behaves strangely, I'm supposed to shoot him. If I behave strangely, Shotwell is supposed to shoot me. We watch the console, and think about shooting each other, and think about the bird. Shotwell's behavior with the jacks is strange. Is it strange? I don't know. Perhaps he is merely a selfish bastard. Perhaps his character is flawed. Perhaps his childhood was twisted. Each of us wears a forty-five, and each of us is supposed to shoot the other if the other is behaving strangely. How strangely is strangely, I do not know. In addition to the forty five, I have a thirty eight, which Shotwell does not know about, concealed in my attache case, and Shotwell has a twenty five caliber Beretta which I do not know about that's strapped to his right calf. Sometimes, instead of watching the console, I pointedly watch Shotwell's forty five, but this is simply a ruse, simply a maneuver; in reality I am watching his hand when it dangles in the vicinity of his right calf. If he decides I'm behaving strangely, he will shoot me not with the forty-five, but with the Beretta. Similarly, Shotwell pretends to watch my forty-five, but he's really watching my hand, resting idly, atop my attaché case. My hand, resting atop my attaché case. And my hand, my hand resting idly, atop my attaché case. In the beginning, I took care to behave normally. So did Shotwell. Our behavior was painfully normal. Norms of politeness, consideration, speech, and personal habits were scrupulously observed. But then it became apparent that an error had been made, that our relief was not going to arrive, owing to an oversight. Owing to an oversight, we have been here for 133 days. When it became clear that an error had been made, that we were not to be relieved, the norms were relaxed. Definitions of normality were withdrawn in the agreement of January 1st, called by us the agreement. Uniform regulations were relaxed and meal times are no longer rigorously scheduled. We eat when we're hungry and sleep when we're tired. Considerations of rank and precedence were temporarily put aside, a handsome concession on that part of Shotwell, who is a captain whereas I am only a first lieutenant. One of us watches the console at all times rather than two of us watching the console at all times, except when we are both on our feet. One of us watches the console at all times, and if the bird flies, then one of us wakes the other, and we turn our keys in the lock simultaneously, and the bird flies. Our system involves a delay of perhaps twelve seconds, but I do not care because I'm not well, and Shotwell does not care because he is not himself. After the agreement was signed, Shotwell produced the jacks and the rubber ball from his attaché case, and I began to write a series of descriptions of forms occurring in nature, such as shells, a leaf, a stone, an animal, on the walls. Shotwell plays jacks, and I write descriptions of natural forms on the walls. Shotwell is enrolled in a USAFI course, which leads to a master's degree in business administration from the University of Wisconsin. Although we are not in Wisconsin, we are in Utah, or Montana, or Idaho. When we went down, it was either Utah, Montana, or Idaho. I don't remember. We have been here for 133 days, owing to an oversight. The pale green reinforced concrete walls sweat, and the air-conditioned zips on and off erratically, and Shotwell reads Introduction to Marketing by Lassiter and Monk, making notes with a blue ballpoint pen. Shotwell is not himself, but I do not know it. He presents a calm aspect, and reads Introducing to Marketing, and makes his exemplary notes with a blue ballpoint pen, meanwhile controlling the 38 in my attaché case with one-third of his attention. I am not well either. We have been here 133 days owing to an oversight, although now we are not sure what is an oversight and what is plan. Perhaps the plan is for us to stay here permanently, or if not permanently, at least a year, for 365 days, or if not for a year, for some hundreds of days known to them and not to us, such as 200 days. It may be that they are pleased with us, with our behavior, not in every detail, but in the sum Perhaps the whole thing is very successful. Perhaps the whole thing is an experiment, and the experiment is very successful. I do not know. But I suspect that the only way we can persuade sun-loving creatures into the pale green sweating reinforced concrete rooms under the ground is to say that the system is twelve hours on, twelve hours off, and then lock us below for some number of days known to them and not to us. We eat well, although the frozen enchiladas are damp when defrosted, and the frozen devil's food cake is sour and untasty. We sleep uneasily and acrimoniously. I hear Shotwell shouting in his sleep, objecting, denouncing, cursing sometimes, weeping other times. In his sleep, when Shotwell sleeps, I try to pick the lock on his attaché case as to get to the jacks. Thus far, I have been unsuccessful. Nor has Shotwell been successful in picking the locks to my attaché case so as to get to the 38. I've seen the marks on the shiny surface. (laughs) I laughed. In the latrine, pale green walls sweating and the air conditioning whispering in the latrine. I write descriptions of natural forms on the walls, scratching them on the tile surface with a diamond. The diamond is a two and a half carat solitaire, and I had it in my attaché case when we went down. It was for Lucy. The south wall of the room containing the console is already covered. I've described a shell, a leaf, a stone, animals, a baseball bat. I'm aware that the baseball bat is not a natural form, yet I described it. The baseball bat, I said, is typically made of wood. It is typically one meter in length, or a little longer, fat on one end, tapering to afford a comfortable grip on the other. My description of the baseball bat ran to 4,500 words, all scratched with a diamond on the south wall. Does Shotwell read what I've written? I don't know. "'I'm aware that Shotwell regards my writing behavior as strange, "'yet it is no stranger than his jack's behavior, "'or the day he appeared in black bathing trunks "'with his 25 caliber Beretta strapped to his right calf "'and stood over the console, "'trying to span with his two arms outstretched "'the distance between the two locks. "'He could not do it. "'I had already tried myself, "'standing over the console with my two arms outstretched. "'The distance is too great. "'I was moved to comment, but did not comment. "'Comment would have provoked counter-comment. "'Comment would have led God knows where.' They had, in their infinite patience, in their infinite foresight, in their infinite wisdom, already imagined a man standing over the console with his two arms outstretched, trying to span with his two arms outstretched the distance between the locks. Shotwell is not himself. He has made certain overtures. The burden of his message is not clear. It has something to do with the keys, with the locks. Shotwell is a strange person. He appears to be less affected by our situation than I am. He goes about his business stolidly, watching the console, studying introduction to marketing, bouncing his rubber ball on the floor in a steady, rhythmical, conscientious manner. He appears to be less affected by our situation than I am. He's stolid. He says nothing. But he's made certain... overtures? Certain overtures have been made. I'm not sure that I understand them. They have something to do with the keys, the locks. Shotwell has something in mind stolidly he shucks the shiny silver paper from the frozen enchiladas stolidly he stuffs them into the electric oven but he has something in mind but there must be a quid pro quo i insist on a quid pro quo i have something in mind i am not well i do not know our target they do not tell us for which city the bird is targeted i do not know that is planning. That is not my responsibility. My responsibility is to watch the console. And when certain events take place upon the console, turn my key in the lock. Shotwell bounces the rubber ball on the floor in a steady, stolid, rhythmic manner. I am aching to get my hands on that ball, on the jacks. We've been here 133 days owing to an oversight. I read on the walls. Shotwell chants onesies, twosies, threesies, foursies in a precise, well-modulated voice. And now he cups the jacks and the rubber ball in his hands and rattles them suggestively. And I don't know for which city the bird is targeted. And Shotwell's not himself. Sometimes I cannot sleep. Sometimes Shotwell cannot sleep. Sometimes when Shotwell cradles me in his arms and rocks me to sleep, singing Brahms' Guten Abend Nacht," or I cradle Shotwell in my arms and rock him to sleep, singing, I understand what it is Shotwell wishes me to do. At such moments, we are very close. But only if he will give me the jacks. That is fair. There's something he wants me to do with my key while he does something with his key. But only if he will give me my turn. That's fair. I am not well. And that was our doubleheader. Hope you enjoyed it. Fun to read. If you had a good time, tell a friend, write a review, help spread the weird. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash You know that story we did last week about the mutant hillbillies? The Hogben story? Well, about to put up another Hogben story up on Patreon as bonus content. That kind of thing. Rewards, you know, ad-free episodes, stuff like that. Patreon.com slash Drabblecast. We appreciate your support. Our program is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Dough Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. And it was brought to you by Cameron Howard, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Bart Epstein, John Gentry, Jocelyn Gerwig, Melissa Knight, Audrey Koziall, Lydia Moon, Nicole Neely, Joseph Patras, a 10 foot rubber ball that blends in well with its bucolic settings, and yours truly, Norm Sherman. Reminding you, <laughs> everybody goes too far sometimes.